Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 20, as we continue our journey in this portion of God's Word. We, again, as I often encourage us to do, to marvel at the wisdom of God, that though this was written by a very specific author with a fairly specific audience in mind, uh, Matthew's not the primary author of Scripture. God himself is the primary author of Scripture, and so we can rejoice that while this passage was written for whomever Matthew was thinking of, uh, it was also written for you today, because God was thinking of you and thinking of even this moment. So this is God's word for you, even this morning, starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, 
touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would increase our faith. For some, that means going from nothing to something. Would your spirit be pleased to work in that regenerative work? For some of us, that means going from something little to something slightly less little. Would your spirit be pleased to work in that sanctification? Grow us for Christ's sake, we ask. Amen. I want you to think for just a moment about the process of getting a new job, right? Oh, it's an awful process, isn't it? Job interviews are terrible. Trying to discern, should I get this job? Should I, I take this job? Should I take that job? Uh, uh, what do I have to do? Uh, why am I the best candidate? Is this, are they lying to me? Are they telling the truth? Uh, is it a good job? It, it tends to just be stressful. But as you actually kind of get to the meat and potatoes of evaluating a position, it's intriguing kind of what runs through your head. And again, I don't mean now for a summer job for a college student. But when you go to evaluate a career. And one of those kind of questions that perhaps isn't on the front of all of our minds when we're looking at a new career or a new job in such a way, but eventually kind of shows up somewhere along the way. Is this the kind of position that I could have some sort of career advancement? Is is there an upward mobility in this position? Or is this the kind of job that I take it and then 35 years from now when I retire, I'm doing the same job for the same money plus my 2% raise every year uh, and I've made no kind of any change or development or growth or improvement all right, obviously that second category is not a category that many of us find uh, an intriguing idea, 30 years of the same thing over and over and over again, but we love the idea of being able to be, you know, maybe um, advanced in some way. Perhaps we learn new skills, perhaps we take a promotion, perhaps we get uh, people that we get to manage when we didn't start a manager, perhaps we get to do different things. That's a, a common sense sort of question. It's a kind of, what does the future look like? And what does my kind of growth curve in that future look like? What does it resemble? Do I have chance to improve? Now, it, it's easy for us at this point to kind of really make fun of a, a mom in asking what on the surface looks to be a very foolish question of the Lord Christ. But I suspect that if we actually kind of paid attention and thought about it from that perspective, that's in essence the question she's asking Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm at this point probably by the standards, <laughs> by the life expectancy of that era, she's an older woman, not by our definition, but certainly by the time in which they live. I'm an older woman. My primary source of income for retirement would be my boy's. They're the the retirement home that I'm going to live in. They're my social security. They're my passive income. They're my hope for the future. And since they're your people, 
what kind of upward mobility might there be? In fact, actually, it kind of sparks that as a good thought for us to think about because, I mean, if we're honest, that's a, a question that Christians really need to have answered for just Christianity in general. Right? We, we tend to do a very good job of talking about the coming in part of Christianity. We tend to do a really good job of talking about, okay, if you want to become a Christian, I know how to do that. Make that offer quite regularly. It's my favorite conversation. It really is. I'm not actually joking about that one. But sometimes we don't do perhaps a good enough job of talking about, okay, now that I'm in, now that I'm a Christian, what does career advancement look like inside Christianity? If you're a young man, does career advancement for Christianity mean that you have to go become a pastor? Is that what it means? I know portions of the church that incorrectly teach that. Puts an unbelievable burden on our young ladies. Well, what does that mean? If I'm a young lady and I'm supposed to be growing in Christianity, what's my, what does career advancement look like for me if I can't go become a pastor? Because we know every successful Christian is a pastor. And I think Jesus gives a much better answer than the silly answer I'm even discussing in Matthew chapter 20 here. He's going to lay out, actually, I would suggest, a frame of, of thinking about our future in a way that is going to be, I would hope, both challenging and convicting. You see, we're uh, kind of in the, the life of Jesus here. We're moving toward the end of his ministry in the book of Matthew. He's uh, been teaching at this point long enough that the disciples have really started to get it. Matthew chapter 16 and chapter 18 are two of the major turning points, but where the disciples finally begin to understand who it is that is their rabbi. He's not just a, a carpenter who uh, is really winsome with his words. He's not just uh, this brilliantly kind of uneducated scholar who's spent his childhood studying the Bible in the temple and now knows it better than the men who taught him the Old Testament at least. He's not just a man who has the ability to do miracles that no one else can kind of replicate that they can't understand. At this point in kind of the engagement, they've begun to realize that he is who he says he is. He is what he's claimed to be every step of the way, what he has declared and what the Jews have understood. He is the very Son of God. He is God himself. God in human form incarnate inside creation, inside matter, time, and space, and energy. And this marks a significant point, kind of again, in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, is how this section begins with Jesus foretelling his death a third time. Jesus, again, uh, teaching his disciples, instructing them, and preparing them for the end of his kind of earthly ministry as they know it. It's quickly approaching. And as he's been teaching them, he's instructed them, each time he foretells his death, it's with a little bit greater clarity, a little bit greater detail. Perhaps that's because in his humanity, as he studied the Old Testament, it became clearer to him how he was going to die. He's human. Humans don't have infinite knowledge. In his humanity, he had to learn. 
was the greatest Old Testament scholar of all time. He had to learn. How he figured out crucifixion by this point, I'm not entirely sure, but he had and he knew. That's the key kind of detail that's put in here. And as he instructs them, again, you remember, this is one of those topics that the disciples tend to not like talking about. We've seen Peter kind of mouth off back to Jesus at parts where uh, not really wanting to engage the difficulty and the, the dark part of the ministry that's coming, the sadness and the sorrow. Here we have, as often happens, Jesus explaining the nature of his ministry and a dear-hearted saint immediately failing. That's usually how it goes, either Peter running his mouth or someone else. Here we get to see the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, uh, intriguing kind of interaction. He's just explained his death to them. He's explained it with greater detail. He's mentioned that word crucifixion. And again, we've lost most of the emotional stigma that crucifixion would have had. Uh, Crucifixion was the cruelest mechanism of execution that had been devised on planet Earth at that point. It was so cruel that it was illegal for Romans to do it to Romans. You could not do that to a Roman citizen because it was so cruel that it was only permitted on slaves and outcasts. You you couldn't do that to a citizen. It's beyond cruel and unusual punishment. It is the most terrible way to die I can possibly conceive of. Jesus has just commented that that that's how he's going to die. Oh yeah, by the way. And I love how Matthew kind of jams the two stories together and immediately almost the mother of the sons of Zebedee is asking a question. Hey, Jesus, I've got a question. Oh, oh, okay. You want to have a conversation about crucifixion? Okay, we can talk about that. You want to have a conversation about what it means that he'll be raised on the third day, that Jesus is even predicting his own resurrection and predicted it with great regularity? Yeah, I would have loved for them to have asked the question, hey, can you walk us through what Old Testament passages you're using to understand this? I would have loved that. Man, that would have been amazing. Instead, she asks a question that on the surface, again, we can look at and we can probably laugh at. Many of us have judged her maybe perhaps privately in our hearts or even perhaps more vocally with our mouths. Jesus asks her in 21, what's your question? What do you want? It's not kind of the rude, snappy way that you could, what do you want? It's more of a, what's your question? And her question is, as mentioned previously, what is the career advancement? What's the career path look like for my sons? Now, it doesn't sound that way to us, but that's what she's asking. Would you please say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom? And that is a loaded statement, if ever I've heard one. One that perhaps requires a little bit of unpacking from us so that we might understand what's going on. One, the significance of sitting on right and sitting on left. We really don't think this way that regularly in our current culture. Perhaps the only situation we might think categorically like this would be if you you attended a really formal wedding right a really formal southern wedding you can tell exactly how important a person is by which table they're assigned to sit at 
Right? And you've all probably been to that wedding, one where you're sitting a lot closer than you thought you were, and you're like, well, this is a little awkward. I like them, but not that much. Or perhaps the one where you're just kind of seething, you have steam coming out your ears because you should be at the table way up there, and instead you're way back here. And have you seen the other people at this table? How dare she think of me like that, right? It, we, it's perhaps really the only situation that we have where we kind of categorically understand a seating arrangement that is designed to convey meaning. A seating arrangement that's not just designed to convey meaning, but to tell the people how important they are by where they sat. One of my buddies uh, attended Georgia Tech, and he had a professor there that had a policy that the front row got an A, the second row got a B, the third row got a C, and the fourth row got a D. Anything after that failed. Guess where everybody sat? Funny enough, he never had issues with people sitting in the back of class. They never learned anything. They never tried, because as long as they sat on the front row, they were good to go. There's a little bit of this happening, uh, I mean, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but a little bit of this happening in Jewish culture where, uh, again, they tended to sit at U-shaped tables and left and right distinguished. You could literally count out, uh, according to the seats at the table, you could rank them from top to bottom, and it was a very clear pecking order. What she's asking is for her two boys, James and John, uh, to be assigned positions number two and number three. She's not asking for them to be number one. That's Jesus. She's assuming that he's sitting there. But hey, Jesus, I I mean, can my boys, can they take a promotion? Can they be number two and number three? Is that that possible? You know, there's a, a second part of this kind of culturally that's happening here that would perhaps be a a bit remiss if we didn't mention is that she's absolutely unequivocally trying to manipulate Jesus. Um, She is trying to put him on the record to maneuver him into assigning her sons, her boys, positions of great power. Now, the other key to this, as not stated clearly in the Gospels, but is certainly kind of hinted at and we think assumed, is that uh, this is probably Salome. It's probably her name, as best guess, which actually makes her Jesus' aunt. Uh, which makes James and John his cousins. Uh, And so this is also kind of more likely not just a a, a mom trying to get her boys promoted, but there's probably a really uncomfortable family tie here where Jesus' aunt has probably tried to corner him and is trying to kind of arm twist him to leverage him to say, hey, Jesus, won't you honor the family tie and, and make your cousins, make my boys numbers two and three in the pecking order? Uh, It's a very common thing. In fact, actually, it's kind of been well noted by uh, a lot of different types, sociologist types, that the more kind of patriarchically uh, fixed and rigid a society is, how sometimes it can produce a fairly manipulative style of female communication. Uh, And that's what she's doing here. She is absolutely trying to maneuver Jesus into a very specific goal to put him on the record that his cousins would be placed in positions two and three. So it's easy for us to kind of look at her question and just condemn her right out, right? It's easy for us to say, how dare you? How how self-serving, how underhanded, and how manipulative, how rotten you are. It's easy for us to say that. 
The problem, though, is that when we do that, we, we actually miss some of the beautiful underpinnings of what she's assuming in her question, in her request. You see, she's assuming that Jesus is king. That's not up for negotiation. Right? When she's saying it, it's like, hey, by the way, when you come into your kingdom, I know that you're already king. I know that you're not ruling and reigning in fullness yet. But when you do, when you give my boys a promotion, she's already assuming that Jesus is the king of all the Jews and the king of all the land and king of all the world. That is an amazing assumption at this point in Jesus' career. At this point in his ministry, she's probably actually exhibiting greater faith than most of his disciples have at this point. It's amazing, really. She gets it, but but doesn't. (laughs) She's also at some point probably been listening, and Jesus has been very clear, hasn't he? You don't have things because you don't ask. He's been very clear in his ministry that, look, hey, the style of interaction that God's people are to have with their God, that Jesus' disciples are to have with Jesus, is to ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Here, let me teach you how to pray. Introduction, request, 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 conclusion. It's all requests. So in some sense, well done, right? Good job, you've been paying attention. Jesus has been saying he's king of the universe. She's got that in some fashion. Jesus has been saying you should ask for things. She's got that in some fashion. She's just got the wrong target. Or it's the right idea, just the wrong execution. Like you got, the, you got, you got it kind of right, but not entirely. It's like when one of the, the young children with which I have been a fil- uh, familiar with in my life, uh, used to say when learning contractions, used to say, no, I amn't. And you're like, I have to applaud you because you got it right, but oh so wrong, right? Conceptually, you took the verb, you added the in, you know, apostrophe T, you've got the contraction right, but that's not a word. So close. You see, that's what mom has done here is uh, she's tried to maneuver Jesus into a situation. And honestly, in so many ways, she's so right. But at the same time, so very wrong. And friends, I think this is a situation that we can honestly relate to with great regularity. Because what she's doing is she's taking her own wants, her own desires, and her own needs And she's projecting them onto Jesus and thinking her idea is the best way to resolve it. Again, remember, those boys represent for her her retirement. They represent for her her uh, continuing income. They represent for her her care in her old age. Those boys represent her livelihood to keep her from being destitute. What she's asking of Jesus is a good, self-preservative, common-sense sort of question. Can my boys be guaranteed a good place? Because if they have that, then I have that. And I'm taken care of. And friends, I think that actually is a situation that probably mirrors much of our prayer life, if we're going to be honest. 
Realistically, we, uh, we're American Christians. Prayer is not a thing that we tend to excel at. Certainly, unfortunately, American Presbyterians, perhaps if we were South Korean, but we're not, most of us, I guess. But often when we do pray, our prayer life, again, looks like taking the, the right ideas of our needs and our desires and the right idea that God is the one who can meet those and provide for those, but then projecting on Him that we know the best way to do it. Rather than a, thy will be done. Rather than a, you know me and you're caring for me. Rather than a, you are goodness itself. Well, Jesus, I need you to do it my way. Because I know what I'm talking about. It's my life. Well, interestingly, Jesus gives an answer, and it's a full answer. Matthew's going to give a fuller one here as he kind of pushes, mushes all of these things together and very quickly will kind of buzz through this. What Jesus lays out in Matthew highlights and how he smushes it together. The path of career advancement for Christians is not an effort in climbing the pyramid. Career advancement for Christianity, growth in Christianity is, is not actually the way up at all. It's the way down. It's not a race to the top, it's a race to the bottom. It's an effort to to get to the very lowest of places so that even as what Jesus has said previously ended the previous chapter, that those who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is significant in how Jesus answers her question. Jesus, will you make my boys, numbers two and three, in your kingdom? Amazing statement, even that she knows his kingdom is going to be what it is. So Jesus corrects her in verse 22. You don't even know what you're asking. <laughs> you, don't know, you don't know what that means. I mean, I love you, but no, you're, you're missing the big point. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, at this point, English is a bit weak. We don't have a second person plural. He switched to the plural because he knows his conversation is with his aunt, but it's more likely actually with the boys. It's with the cousins. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Verbiage that they would have known was a reference to suffering would have been even clearer because he's just explained to them what suffering would look like. He will be condemned to death. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked. He'll be flogged. He'll be crucified. His question to them is just as loaded as the question given to him. Are you able to suffer the way that I do. Now, interestingly, I, I think most of us, as any sense of common sense, would say, no, 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 I'm not able to do that. Not only am I not able to do that, I'm not sure I want to do that. Would second place in the kingdom of God be worth suffering like that? And interestingly, I think the boys actually have the better answer. Weirdly enough, I think James and John actually give a better answer than what I do. Their answer is, in essence, it's worth it. Yeah, we'll do it. If it takes crucifixion to receive blessings for all eternity, sign me up. I I can't conceive of that. 
Right? If we're having a new members class here in just a matter of weeks, can you imagine if that was kind of one of the concluding questions at new members class? Hey, we want you to grow spiritually. We're going to help take care of you. We're going to help make that happen. All you have to agree to is at some point, at some point in the future, you'll be crucified. That's not a big deal. I mean, it's not now. It's later. You don't have to worry about it. It's not like it's tomorrow. I mean, it might be the day after, but it's not tomorrow. I suspect our membership would be very low. I suspect you'd probably have to find another pastor, too. But interesting, that's kind of Jesus' interchange with him. Look, if, if you want to be blessed in such a way, are you willing to suffer? It's not interesting, eh? are you willing to receive glory? We're all in for that. Right? Can you imagine that? Well, yeah. I mean, you could be number two in the kingdom. All you have to do is receive encouragement everywhere you go. Okay, sure, I'll take that. All you have to do is be praised by people everywhere, and everybody encourages you, and they say nice things about you, and they build you up constantly. Well, sure, I'll take that job, I guess. I mean, I'll suffer that way. Now, interestingly, Jesus' answer to them is very different. Look, if you're going to be high in the kingdom of God, If you're going to be blessed in the kingdom of God, the path that you follow is not one of blessing now. It's one of tears now and blessing later. James and John answer, I think, correctly, yeah, we'll sign us up. We'll take that trade. We'll, We'll suffer now for glory later. And guess what? Jesus keeps his promise. I mean, we all know John, right? He suffers terribly. He's the one that's exiled to Patmos, ends up writing a portion of the scripture, but from exile with great suffering along the way. Uh, Most of you forget that James suffers too. In fact, actually, James suffers so badly, his death is not even an entire sentence in the scriptures. Acts chapter 12, just mentioned in passing. Oh yeah, by the way, he was killed with a sword, but Peter was also in prison, but Peter was miraculously set free. And we all know that passage because we love the part where the angel comes to Peter and says, get up, it's time to go out and you're saved. And we all forget, oh yeah, by the way, James was murdered here. Jesus keeps his promise. The path to the top in Christianity is a path of suffering. Secondly, you get to see, interestingly, Jesus answered them. 23, yeah, by the way, okay, fair enough. You want that trade, you can have it. You will drink my cup. You're going to suffer, but I actually can't give you the position to the right of me or to the left of me because it doesn't belong to me to give. God the Father is in charge of this. He is the one who is in charge of the kingdom. He's the one in charge of it all. I can't give to you what belongs to to him. It's interesting that even Jesus is acknowledging that uh, in terms of kind of, again, this idea of career advancement, of growing in, in glory and blessing in the kingdom of God, it belongs to the Father. It's not on our own terms. It's, it's not the American dream, right? The American dream is that anybody, if they're willing to work hard enough and to be smart enough, can become anything they want to believe. You know, anything they want to, to be, any, anything you have in your imagination, if you work hard enough, you can do it. Interestingly, the Lord's going to, Jesus highlights here at some point, look, that just doesn't work inside Christianity because God has his perfect plans. They're better than yours. You can't just kind of, you know, solo bootstrap or just work harder and you can get yourself into a better situation. God is in charge of his perfect kingdom and perfect plan. 
Verse 24 is, again, kind of understated, I suspect, and a, a bit comical to me. Jesus offers them the cup of suffering. They take it. He promises to give it, but says, I can't give you the blessing that you want uh, the way that you're asking specifically. And all of the other disciples get angry. I love that. Right? What a human conversation. Hey, you would like to suffer? All right, fair enough. You can suffer. And people get upset about that. Right? Classic proof. People will get upset about everything. Doesn't matter what decision you make. Somebody will be angry about it. Uh, It just happens. But so Jesus, resolving it, verse 25, calls them all together and begins to explain to them the dynamics of the kingdom of God. Look, the world out there, the way the world out there works is by taking power and using it over other people. That's how the the Gentiles, that's how the unbelievers work. They amass power for themselves and they lord it over others. They delight in it. I mean, that, that is why, uh, you know, American politics is the great game that it is. It's everybody trying to get one over on the other one to get more power to then use it and abuse it against other folks. Interestingly, Jesus is going to show a different path for Christians. No, we're not like the Gentiles. We don't get to lord our power over them. Uh, we don't get to have exercise, the ability to exercise authority over each other as a mark of greatness. Instead, the way that the kingdom of God works is if you wish to be great, if you wish to be genuinely great in God's kingdom, you must be a servant. In fact, verse 27, intensification, not a servant, but a slave. Two vocab words change here. First one, diakonos. You have to serve. You'd be willing to serve your neighbor, but then Jesus says, that's actually not enough. We're intensifying it. It's doulos to switch to slave. What's the mark of greatness in the kingdom of God? It's to give away power, not to keep it. Not to amass it, not to build it up to show how great and how mighty and how brilliant and how beautiful and how grand and how wonderful we are. It's to give it away. To be disadvantaged. To give up your right to your opinion, which usually means the right for other people to hear your opinion. To give up the right to be right. To give up the right to be thought well of, the, to give up the right to fit in, to give up the right to have friends, to give up the right to anything that we think we have claim to in this life. It's to give it all away. Now the picture of greatness that Jesus is laying out here is just completely against everything we could think of by worldly standards. A person who is so comfortable in God's plan for them, so comfortable in God's design for them, that they are comfortable suffering and comfortable giving away all that they would have claim to. Rather than being obsessed with self, to forget self entirely. 
And if that weren't clear, he then kind of explains what that looks like and what that means. You want to be a, a slave of others, not think chattel slavery like we sadly had in our country in the past, but instead, even as the Son of Man, Jesus himself, didn't come to be served. This is an amazing statement. That the Lord of the universe, the agent of creation, the Word of God incarnate, stepped inside time, space, matter, and energy, and did not do it to make people worship him. Instead, he stepped inside time, space, energy, and matter in order to serve the people that hate him. In order to serve the people that rejected him. In order to serve those that are traitors to the crown so that by his death they would be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many, for, to buy back from death and hell and God's wrath, all of God's people. This is why Jesus is so central to Christianity. You can't have Christianity without Jesus. He is the payment that would buy you back from the grave, buy you back from God's judgment and God's wrath. But again, what an amazing statement that the very God of the universe would step inside time, space, matter, and energy to serve those who hate him. And if we're going to be honest... If that becomes the metric of greatness in Christianity, I suspect not very many of us are very great. If the mark of maturity is a willingness to serve those that hate me, if the mark of maturity is a willingness to serve those that think lowly of me, If the mark of maturity is a willingness to let other people think lesser of me, to let them judge me, to let them condemn me in order that I might serve them, in order that I might love them, in order that I might help them, friends, we really have the wrong standard of greatness, don't we? In fact, actually, if you look at what we tend to think of as great, it's usually uh, actually has to do with gifting more than character. We tend to think of those that are smart or those that are handsome or pretty or those that are funny or those who are very good at their jobs or excel in things that are brilliant. And it's interesting that Jesus is totally undoing all of that and saying, you know what is excellent? You know what real greatness is? It's looking like God in so much that you're willing to love those that despise you. Let them think lesser of you. In fact, actually, I think that's why the next section is so important in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. We get to see what greatness looks like. Two blind men sitting by the roadside. Now, thankfully, in the time in which we live, uh, folks that are, are visually impaired uh, still have very complicated lives, don't get me wrong, but have grossly more resources than they did back then. 
Right? In the time in which this is written, if you were blind or impaired in a way like this, one, you couldn't go into the temple, you couldn't meet with God, but two, you had almost no livelihood, and so you could see they're reduced to sitting on the roadside begging. And as they hear Jesus pass by, these two outcast men, men that likely would have been dirty, men that likely would have been um, uh, not involved in the temple, men that would have been rejected by the community, men that would have been rejected by the religious elite, they start screaming for Jesus. And their, their, their cry is some of the most beautiful theology that you get to see. Lord, have mercy on us because you are the son of David. They're acknowledging, I suspect, the messianic role of King Jesus. They've been listening somewhere along the line and they figured out, much like the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Jesus is who he says he is. And so their cry for help is not based on their need. It's not based on uh, their goodness. It's not based on what they would become if they had their sight. It's based on who God is. Lord, save us. Have mercy. The crowd is embarrassed. Shh, shh, you're too loud. I love it. So they start screaming louder. Desperate men. Desperately looking for Jesus. You see what we have here, men I think that are genuinely great. Those that have suffered, those that are low, that has no regard for themselves, but desperately long for the Lord Christ. Now, how do we put a passage like this into practice for us? I don't think any of us recently have sat down and in our prayer life said, Jesus, I would like to be number two in your kingdom. It's one of the beautiful things about Scripture is oftentimes they make kind of more clear what we do in private and in secrecy. But I suspect that many of us have spent the last week, the last month, the last year, the last decade trying to amass for ourselves greatness. What are the things that make me great? Wealth, reputation, respectability, friends, here's the doozy, people that love us. I mean, you realize how much of parenting today is just, it it is a trip of trying to create little people that will love us forever. That's not good. That's not good at all. See, all of those things, are, are they're trying to kind of replicate Christ's kingdom and to set ourselves up higher than we ought. Instead of saying, you know what? I'll be a servant with no regard for myself as God sees fit to use me. Why? Well, one, Jesus is worth it. Two, he's ransomed me from the grave. And three, how he ended chapter 19. Anything that is sacrificed for Christ is paid back a hundredfold in the life to come. Christ is worth it. May it be that we would delight in him even more 
than we do now. Father, we do ask that you would forgive us for our sins. We are indeed so filled with self, constantly trying to build our own little kingdoms, our own little um, definitions of greatness. Forgive us, we pray, for Christ's sake. And, oh God, give us love for you. For Christ's sake, amen.